Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the story behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Right now on Deep Background, we're focusing on power and the media. Today's guest is someone who can speak about this topic perhaps better than almost anyone else working in journalism today, because she's not merely a supremely successful journalist, but she has also herself become the subject of a deep national discussion around the power of journalism and the effects it can have. I'm talking about Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a staff writer for The New York Times, and the winner of a MacArthur Genius Grant. She is the creator of The 1619 Project, a long-form journalism project drawing on history, sociology, and journalism together that seeks to highlight the contributions of African Americans to the story of the United States while simultaneously recentering the historical role of slavery and segregation to American history. The 1619 Project, as you know, both proved wildly successful in terms of stirring and creating a national discussion and being adopted into curricula in some places, but it has also stirred up a significant amount of controversy. That controversy has gone so far as to lead Republican state legislators to propose laws that would ban the teaching of what's called critical race theory in those laws. We'll leave aside the fact that it's not exactly the thing that has historically been identified as critical race theory, but those are laws that are motivated by an attempt to argue against the teaching that slavery played a central and indeed perhaps definitive role in the creation of our national experience. The 1619 Project is therefore an extraordinary and important example of journalism having power and on the relationship between the power of institutional journalism, institutional history, and political response and reaction. We're very grateful that Nicole was open to appearing here on Deep Background, and we're thrilled that she is here now. Nicole, thank you so much for being here. Nicole, I want to begin by asking you about the extraordinary range and impact that the 1619 Project has had. I'm really fascinated by that 
kind of complex hybrid nature of the project, you know, history and journalism and public policy and education for a couple of reasons. One is I'm just at a basic intellectual level, completely sympathetic to the idea that part of journalism's job is to explain how things got to be the way they are. Um, I mean, that's why I have a podcast called Deep Background. <laughs> and I don't think it's plausible at all that you could explain the way things are except by looking into their deep historical past. So I, I love it because that makes perfect sense to me. And I'm fascinated by the ways that it was so innovative. The second reason I'm interested in it is that, you know, we're exploring here on Deep Background this idea of the power of different institutions and different uh, modes of thinking. And it seems to me, I have a hypothesis that one of the reasons for the amazing power and influence of this project is exactly that you didn't think, oh, we have to stay in our lane. You didn't think, oh, well, that's history and that's a job for historians and we're journalists. No, you thought this is a job for a newspaper and, and a magazine and we're going to include historians in our work, but we also think that that can be contiguous with journalists. And I, I wonder whether you agree that part of the power of this project is that you broke the genre lines. God, I mean, I'd never thought that that's what we were doing or setting out to do, though clearly because of the response to the project, I see that that is how people understand what we did. But again, I've always done my own archival research, unearthed original documents, dug through uh, the archives of, of cases that I was writing about and people I was writing about. I feel like I've been trying to do that in my work for more than a decade now, where all of my writing is deeply historical, that all of my writing has been talking about a modern day phenomena and trying to unearth history in order to help us understand how did we get there and to explain you know, usually school segregation or housing segregation or racialized policing. I've always, always done journalism that didn't just kind of drive by history. But, you know, if you look at my work on school segregation, on housing segregation, two thirds of it is about the past and the rest is about what's happening right now. So when people talk about breaking genre, I'm just like, this is journalism. This is the way that I've always done journalism in that the journalists I've admired have done journalism. I think what was different, though, what was different was it wasn't just a single article, but an entire project that was an entire issue of the magazine, a special section of the newspaper, live events, as well as a podcast series. So we were doing something that, at least for the New York Times, had not been done before. And that we very explicitly set out the aims of the project, which was not just saying, hey, we're going to tell you something about your country that you didn't know, but saying we were explicitly seeking to reframe the narrative and understanding that we have all had about our country. And that that is different. I mean, that's something that I think journalists don't typically do, even if that is their aim, they're not explicitly stating it. So maybe that's that's what was so different. But I, I really, I just felt like this was an extension of the work that I've always done and, and the way that I believe journalism should be. And we included history, we included historians, but historians are writing for journalistic organizations all of the time now. So I guess I just didn't, and maybe I was naive. <laughs> I mean, I, I felt naive in some ways just because of how visceral and kind of unrelenting the attacks on the project have been that to me, it just was a project that in that moment made sense and was part of the work I've always seen myself as doing. That's a fascinating answer. Um, it may be that the combination of the topic of race and racial justice, which is such a central topic to not only the American historical past, but the American present, and the enhanced institutional centrality of the New York Times in an era when other mainstream journalism is in certain ways declining and the, the power of the Times is in many ways greater than it's ever been. You know, the historians, sociologists, and others who participated in the project alongside you and, and other journalists have been saying the stuff that you've all been saying for a long time without it generating this kind of backlash. And so I guess I want to ask about the institutional power of the idea here of the New York Times. You know, do you think one reason that the people who are upset are so upset is part of it that you think the objectors said, well, 
it's the New York Times saying it. And if it's in the New York Times, people will think it's true. And we really don't want people to think these things are true. Could that be part of it? Yes. I, I think absolutely that this project ran in the paper of record, the New York Times, as you said, probably the most powerful news organization, at least a news organization that's not television in the world. That has been a major part of the response. Both of those who who support the project, who were really surprised that the New York Times would run something like this, and those who have opposed the project, who are also very surprised that the New York Times would run something like this. And as a historian, you know, this project is based on decades of scholarship, but that there has been kind of this wall between the scholarship and a popular understanding of the scholarship, right? It hasn't really breached for many people the role of slavery, the role of slavery in the revolution, Abraham Lincoln's racial views, uh, slavery and capitalism and developing the American economy. These are not radical thoughts within the academy. But as you understand, history is academic and then history is what is popularized. And what most Americans think of as history is is often not what's actually in books uh, written by actual historians. So to kind of breach that line with this project and then for it to be really embraced by high school teachers and by public schools, I think is where the huge backlash has come from. It's one thing for Alan Taylor to write about slavery and the revolution in his Pulitzer Prizing books. It's another thing for high school students to now be questioning the role that slavery might have played to motivate the men that we are taught popularly to treat as demigods. And then we also can't discount who brought this project forth, which is, you know, a Black woman, quite outspoken, who doesn't present the way that some people believe I should present. I've been credentialed a lot. People asking, well, how how can she write this? She's not a historian, uh, as if historians don't use journalism in their work every day consulting, uh, you know, the New York Times. Uh, You know, my question to that has always been, who do historians write for? If historians don't want lay people like myself, you know, I majored in history in undergrad, but I'm not clearly an academic historian. If historians don't want lay people to read their texts and use them in real life to understand their world, uh, which is what I do as a journalist, then what, why are historians producing history and who are they, who are they doing it for? So I, I found that credentialing to be actually quite interesting, both from you know, the small group of academic historians who have publicly criticized the project, but also from uh, many people who just don't believe the project should exist at all. Nicole, there are so many fascinating strands in what you just said. Let me just pluck out three and maybe we'll talk about okay. them in turn. First, the idea of the New York Times as this incredibly powerful institution and the fight over what it would or, or wouldn't do. Then the national narrative point about the high school teachers. And then third, the credentialing argument focused on you with the idea that an African-American woman who doesn't have a PhD in history, how could she be the person setting the tone for this whole national conversation? So I, I want to talk about all three of those strands. Let's okay. start with the, with the Times and its power in the center of the story. Is it a good thing that the New York Times is as extraordinarily institutionally powerful as it is right now? I mean, I tend to think better to still have the Times than not to have the Times, given that the alternative would be to have no institution like this. That said, would we be better off in a world where there were more news organizations that had credibility and some claim to, to use a term that we'll come to later, quote unquote, objectivity? So I would say yes to both of those things. I, I think the Times is critically important for our democracy and for understanding our world. There are few news organizations that have the resources to cover the globe the way that the New York Times does. And it has done, you know, unparalleled reporting that I think is necessary. And there aren't many places that could have produced a project like the 1619 Project, period. Not just uh, because of amount of money or resources put into it, but because of the platform that the New York Times provides. So I think that's critical. But I also think that in order for news 
to be the firewall of our democracy, news itself needs to be democratized. And that the fewer voices, the, the fewer institutions, particularly local news that are out there and have the resources to publish and do accountability journalism and do journalism that's just more reflective of our very diverse nation and very diverse world. I think that um, we are less informed because of that. I think power is less held to account because of that. And so I think that, yes, it's absolutely critical to have both of those things. I think we need institutions like the New York Times that are unparalleled. And I, I think we also need institutions uh, like local news reporting, you know, ethnic press. I mean, all of all of that. We, we need to be in a, a news rich environment, particularly in the world that we're in right now. But we need to be in a news rich environment where the people providing that news actually have some ethics and standards uh, of the trade. And I'm worried about uh, how some of that is eroding. Yeah, I worry about that, too. And I worry about you know, since a newspaper does have as part of its DNA the idea of holding power to account, there's also the question of, you know, who holds the newspaper to account? And in the past, the answer was other newspapers. And in that in that extent, if there's an institution that is that sees that as its job, but there isn't a rich environment of other newspapers that see their job as holding that newspaper to account, you know, that that potentially in the long run complicates things, especially if there are people you know, let's say you're, you're a political conservative and you think the New York Times skews liberal, which on certain things, on its editorial policy, of course it does, then you might think, well, what's my alternative? It's Fox News. And, you know, I, Wall I would- Street Journal. Yeah, the journal on its editorial page, I agree, but the journal has such a rigorous distinction between its editorial page and its newspaper. Um, the national narrative point that you were raising that is fascinating to me as well. One of the reasons that the 1619 Project is so significant is that it actually, you conceived it as planning to reach curriculum, and it is indeed reaching curriculum. And then that, in the backlash, has produced these proposed pieces of legislation around the country purporting to outlaw something called critical race theory, which, since I'm a law professor, uh, you know, I, I'm, I know that critical race theory was produced by Derek Bell and, and Kimberly Crenshaw as a rich theoretical apparatus that was not actually primarily about the historical issues that you were writing about. So there's a kind of terminological mismatch there. But in practical terms, it's a reaction to, to you guys and to the 1619 Project. Why do you think the fight over the national narrative is so brutal right now? Is it just the polarization that we're already familiar with? Or does it have something to do with the idea that we still don't want to recognize in many quarters that our founders were not pure and that they, that they had a complex set of beliefs and attitudes and that their institutions were in, in many ways profoundly inflected by, by the structure of, of racism and of slavery. Well, first, let me just um, correct the record a bit. The project was not originally conceived as curriculum. The project- ah, I did not know that. Fascinating. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I, I conceived of the project as a, a work of journalism. That's what we set out to create. And it was later, months down, once the project was already- you know, fully formed and conceived and that we were beginning to report and write the pieces that we started talking about turning it into curriculum. So I think that that has become the narrative that the project from conception was designed to infiltrate America's classrooms. It wasn't. I'm a journalist and I was producing a work of journalism and the Times, you know, is a huge organization with many, many arms and we actually have a curriculum division. So we started discussing that and then ultimately decided, you know, to partner with the Pulitzer Center, which turns regularly turns journalism into curriculum. And no one has a problem with that, but it's just, the, you know, the 1619 Project. So just to clear that up. But I've, you know, I've thought a lot about the response to the project, per particularly, I don't know another work of journalism that has been as legislated against as the 1619 Project. You know, the project has been mentioned in both of Donald Trump's impeachment trials for God knows why, except it's you know being used as a tool of, of white resentment. These laws that are being passed all across the country, including in my home state, and I've thought a lot about why that is. And it's hard to sometimes grasp when you're in the middle of something. What are all the causes? This is why we we like to study history because with some distance, you you can get more understanding of of all of the forces. But I, I, several things are happening. The project came out in 
2019 during the Trump presidency, which some on the right saw as planned, though I certainly couldn't have planned for the 400th anniversary to fall in 2019, that that was put into motion 400 years ago. And I was very careful with the project, really not to mention Donald Trump at all, because the project was not about a single moment in American history. The project was about the sweep of 400 years and whether Donald Trump was a president or Obama was a president, everything in the project would have been just as true. But I think because it it landed in that moment when we had replaced the first black president with, I would say, an openly white nationalist president, where we were seeing a lot of Americans really trying to understand because they believed that the election of Obama had somehow banished racism in America and we had reached this post-racial age. And then a white minority elects a white nationalist as president. And then after the project comes out, of course, we see... George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the largest protest for civil rights in the history of our country. And with that is coming, I think, a lot of fears being stoked about the changing demographics of our nation, a changing sense of power. You started seeing, of course, all these companies embracing Black Lives Matter, a massive shift in in white Americans embrace of Black Lives Matter for the first time. Uh, More than 50% of white Americans supported that movement. White Americans were starting, I think large percentages of them were really starting to believe that maybe uh, there is something systemic going on in this country, that it's not just about individual Black people choosing to take advantage. And the 1619 Project is in the middle of all of that. And I think what happens then is there is a tremendous pushback by those who are in power. We're talking about sitting U.S. senators. We're talking about the Secretary of Defense, right? We're talking about Nikki Haley, who was at the United Nations, people who are standing for institutional power in a almost entirely white political party began to see the 1619 Project as as symbolic of some larger, I think, cultural shift and that this could be something that could be a useful political tool because it was I think they were tapping into a feeling amongst many white Americans like, well, maybe maybe things have gone too far. Okay, I support Black Lives Matter, but now are they saying I have to hate this country's founding? Now now they want me to talk about the fact that George Washington was an enslaver and Thomas Jefferson was an enslaver. And we have a great deal of investment in the mythology of America. I mean, every country has investment in its own mythology. But what's so hard about the United States is no other country was founded on these ideals of liberty, where their entire identity of, as a country is on this belief that we are the freest, greatest, uh, most liberatory country in the world. And so we have not wanted to grapple with what it means to be founded on slavery and freedom, that freedom for white people in this country was actually created on the enslavement of black people. That's why the project had to exist in the first place is we haven't wanted to deal with that. And so to have this project come out and then this really turbulent time with Black Lives Matter protests and a president who is openly stoking white resentment. I think we got this really combustible mix and and that's where we are right now. We're seeing a massive pushback against the belief that Black people's gains are coming too swiftly and they are coming at the cost of of white Americans. And we've seen this before. So uh, that to me is why this is so fundamentally difficult and why we fight so hard not to be truthful about our past is we don't feel like the narrative of our nation can withstand the truth. And, you know, I I guess I'm just not sure what as a, as a black person in this country, who I always say we're the most, you know, inconvenient people to this nationalistic narrative that Americans need to have. What are we then supposed to do with that? We are just supposed to ignore um, that we didn't have freedom, that we were held in bondage, that we're still fighting, you know, for equality now. I, I can't do that and I won't do that. That's a fascinating and I think very astute historical analysis of the moment that, that you're in. And I agree that the the fact of the social movement of Black Lives Matter and its its successes in the relevant historical moment has to be understood in conjunction with the with the response to Black Lives Matter. That also explains some of the personal attacks on you, you know, which may come in the form of attacking credentials, but are presumably also included in a very fundamental way, the idea that you're a black woman telling people, hey, this is the truth, and here's here's all the proof that it's the truth, and it, it's hard for people to say it's not the truth, because it is, and so their response is, who are you, right? I mean, you don't have the relevant credential. I mean, that's sort of like 
the worst, least convincing form of argument that can be imagined, but it doesn't mean it's not pretty difficult to have to sustain it on a, on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> yeah. And it's been, I mean, it's actually been uh, fairly successful, I think, that argument because, I mean, and you know this as, as someone who works in academia, that disagreement is inherent to academia and that history and the field of historiography is about interpretations of fact. And you can look at, two historians can look at the same exact facts and come up with different interpretations of them. And that's not seen as disqualifying. But what has occurred with the the 1619 Project is, really, I I can't even say the 1619 Project, it's almost been exclusively just my opening essay in the 1619 Project, is the fact that some historians felt I made an argument too strong about the American Revolution and the role of slavery, that that has been used then to justify trying to discredit the entire project as well as me as a journalist. And that's what I think we've been fighting against ever since is it doesn't matter how many times I put up pieces written by other historians who say actually their interpretations are well within the range of accepted scholarship. Mm -hmm. We agree with their interpretations. It doesn't matter because there there really is a vested interest that really spans the political spectrum. It's not just a vested interest of white conservatives. I think there's a vested interest of many white moderate and progressives as well to believe that we may have been a country that have has failed in some ways, but that we are fundamentally good and we are founded by fundamentally good people. And I'm saying, I don't, it's not an argument about whether our founders were good or bad, right? Every human being is capable of doing really terrible things and really great things. It's just a matter of what they did is what they did. And what they said about how they felt about Black people is what they said. And I just don't, see the benefit of obscuring that, even if it makes us very uncomfortable. We have to be able to have complex discussions about who we are as a people and a nation. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm 
slash plus. Nicole, I'm glad that you raised this issue of interpretation as the the kind of day in and day out work of historians, and then the relationship of that to the work of journalism, because it leads us to one of the topics that to me is most important here, and that is the contested idea of objectivity. Yes. And so I want to spend a minute talking with you about, first of all, whether the word objectivity has different meanings in the context of journalism and the context of history. And second of all, about whether that word is useful at all to us uh, in either of those contexts, because I think that's a hard question. I don't think there's a, a simple answer to it, but I think it does have something to do with why the fights here have been enabled to be so brutal. I'm not in any way disputing what you're saying about there being vested interests, but you know there are different kinds of vested interests. There are vested interests that are grounded in economic interests, that are grounded in capital, and then there are vested interests that are grounded in people's deeply held beliefs that may have something to do in some instances with underlying economic interests, but also have a life of their own. So I guess I want to start with objectivity in journalism and then talk about objectivity in history, and then we'll talk about how they bump into each other. So you've, you've spoken about this before. What's your view on objectivity in journalism? Yeah, thank you for that. And let me just just quickly back up, I don't think the opposition to the 1619 Project or to kind of the rendering of history uh, and society that the 1619 Project poses is merely economic. I don't even know that it's primarily economic. It really is about the power to shape identity and how mm-hmm. we think about ourselves as a nation and the fundamental goodness of uh, America that we're indoctrinated into from the moment we take our first breath. With that said, I, I think your question about objectivity in history and objectivity in journalism is a very interesting one and not one that I've gotten, though I'm clearly working around both areas. And and after I answer, I'd actually love to hear your answer on that. Sure. So one, I think in some ways they're they're slightly different because journalism encompasses not just kind of daily reporting, just the facts reporting, but also opinion writing, you know, we do reporting that is accountability reporting. And I don't think you can, when you're writing about Watergate, you're not being objective. You don't think the government should be corrupt. And there's explanatory reporting. And I think history, you don't tend to think of, of being about opinion, but really of unearthing what happened and helping us understand why and what it, what it meant. So I think there's, there's some differences there. But I do think both of them both fields really do, I would say, hide behind, but certainly offer up the armor of objectivity that the person who is uh, producing the work is not operating from their own personal sense of things or their own personal politics, that they're just going where the facts lead us. Of course, that's never been true. I mean, we know that that's never been true. And, you know, you look at someone like Sean Valentin, No Property in Men, there's been plenty of other historians who have disagreed with the way that he sees um, the role of slavery in the Constitution and James Madison's motivations for putting yeah, that. I'm, I'm one of them, the so yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so one could say that objectively based on his understanding of... Uh, that history. That's why he writes that. But I would say that's not actually coming from an objective perspective, that he is a man with certain uh, beliefs about this nation. He is a a man who grew up in this nation, racialized and genderized in a certain way, with a certain class status, and that all of these things um, play into your, or, or even your field of study, right? Have you spent a ton of time studying slavery in particular or not? And I think all of those things then go into how you're interpreting uh, these different documents and the motivations, because what, what that really is about is trying to interpret the motivation. And that is not, unless the person, you know, James Madison said, I am putting this in here because I feel this way about slavery, then we are trying to surmise based on a lot of contextual things. And that's similar, I think, to what journalism does, which is what we choose to study in the first place, both as historians and journalists, 
rarely objective, almost always subjective, who we study, what primary documents we use, what is going to be the focus of the work. These are not objective decisions. And when I think about objectivity, I think we should all strive for objectivity of method. And the word is useful in that way, right? Am I being fair? Am I being accurate? Am I accurately describing the events as they happened? And am I being fair to the parties involved in my rendering of the events that happened? But that's very different than pretending that what I'm doing is in and of itself objective. When I choose to write about school segregation as opposed to writing about something else in education. That's that's a subjective choice. I think that it's important. Other journalists did not, and they didn't write about it uh, that much. And I think we should just be more honest about the limits of this notion of objectivity and that it has never existed and that all of us are pursuing work through the framework of our own lived existence and what makes sense to us as we study scholarship how we interpret it. I, I write about this actually in the new in the preface for the 1619 book. And I talk about Abraham Lincoln and the offense that, you know, the small group of scholars took to thinking I was calling Abraham Lincoln racist, which I actually didn't call him racist. I did say that according to his own words, he didn't believe um, in equality for black Americans. But two different historians can look at Lincoln's view on colonization, for instance. And one could argue that he believed in colonization as a political argument because he just didn't think white moderates would agree to abolish slavery if there were going to be a bunch of free Black people living in America. And I think you could justify that based on on what we know about Lincoln. And others might say, well, we, we think Lincoln actually didn't believe Black people had a place in our democracy and that they were going to be the the troublesome presence and that the best thing to do would be to leave them, that these were his personal beliefs. And I think you could support both of those things, which is the objective view in that case. But as you know, most Americans don't have a real understanding of how the field works. And so they think there is an answer, a single right answer, but historians know better. And I think that's why some of the criticism, not the criticism, but the efforts to actually discredit the facts of the project felt personal to me, which is, a, I, I'm getting off on a tangent, so I apologize. No, no, it's, no, don't apologize. And it's not a tangent. I mean, I think everything you said hung together. I, let me take up your invitation to just say a word about how it looks from, from my perspective. Yes, I, mean, I would I, love to hear it. I, I tend to agree with you that it's helpful to try to distinguish both in journalism and in history the part of the work that is focused on getting facts and which should strive to objectivity. I'm not saying it can ever perfectly reach it, but should strive to reporting and setting down factual events in as accurate a way as possible, right? Yes. So let's say we're trying to figure out what Abraham Lincoln said to the group of five prominent Washington, D.C. African-Americans who were invited to, to meet with him in the White House, in the period right before he announced the, the Emancipation Proclamation or after yes. he'd mentioned his draft, that, there was a meeting, there was a conversation there. We'll never get the exact transcript of what was said because it was not Watergate, there were no tapes, but we have various reports of what was said and both a journalist and a, and a historian would try really hard to get the facts of what was said at that meeting to the extent possible, knowing full well that there are gaps in the record. So for example, you know, we've got some accounts of what Lincoln said the accounts of what the African-Americans who had been chosen for that delegation said are, are harder to come by. They're there, but they're, they, it takes more work to find them. Yes. And, you know, we weren't in the room. We don't know exactly what went down. But that's the part that I think we can strive for objectivity on. Then comes the interpretation part. And there, it's tricky because I think all working historians know and accept that the job of the historian isn't just to say what happened in the meeting, but to say what it meant, you know, how it fit together and to try to speculate on why people said what they said, and also to speculate on what they might have meant when they said what they said. So, you know, we, we know with pretty high degree of objectivity that Lincoln told that, that group of men, they were men, you African-Americans are the cause of the war. It's your fault. You know, he, he used this metaphor that Frederick Douglass was so horrified by afterwards, and it's still very horrifying today, where he, you know, he basically told them, white people are killing each other over you, so you're, you're the problem. <laughs> um, that's very close to verbatim what, what Lincoln said. But to understand what he meant by that requires a work of interpretation. And that part, I think, is much harder to describe as objective because it's reconstructive. You know, it's an effort of trying to 
figure out what was in somebody's mind and what were the political circumstances and means. That's true in journalism as well. And to that extent, there's an interpretive component to journalism as well. Uh, otherwise, it would just be a transcript. And so I think, you know, in both contexts, striving for objectivity, even knowing we'll never get there, is pretty valuable. But I also think at the same time that that claim to objectivity gives a lot of authority, what you were describing as the armor or the power of objectivity. It gives a lot of power, right? The claim to objectivity is itself a claim to power. So that's my, my first thought on it. And my second has to do with what you were saying, Nicole, about you know each of us has a come from. We're, we're people of a certain race and gender and historical context. I think that's all true. And it contributes to why we see things the way we see things. But I'm not sure that it's ever fully determinative. Because, you know, we could look at Sean Wilentz uh, and his interpretation, say, of James Madison, and then some other white guy, historian, I'll, I'll use myself as an example, who reads the same sources and reaches a different conclusion about James Madison's views based on Madison's own words. I think some of it is just the human work of interpretation is hard and people will reach different interpretations. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly would not argue that your race, gender, or class status is determinative. I would argue that it is influential mm-hmm. and that even within white men of a certain age um, who grew up in a certain place of a certain class status, they were certainly raised with different values, right? And sure. raised with different backgrounds and histories. Maybe one is one step out of poverty. Maybe his family came from immigrants. There's there's lots of factors. But my larger point is, is this belief somehow that we can shear ourselves of our identity and just become objective kind of arbiters. I just don't think that that is, is realistic. And that's why when I say what I strive for and what I think we should you know, more honestly strive for is, again, objectivity of method. And objectivity of method is getting down all of your facts, right? Like you said, who said what at that meeting? When did it occur? Where did it occur? Why did it occur? And then what is an accurate kind of presentation of, based on what we know about Lincoln, what we think he might have been trying to do with that meeting, right? That, to me, is what we're we're trying to do. But to then say as Shyamalan's argued in his essay against uh, the 1619 Project, it's just about the facts. To me, it's, it's, it's false. And it is giving... Yeah, that, that can't be right. False, I, I agree. It can't be right, about that. idea yeah. of, I know the truth, and this is not the truth. Now, you could say that about, did this meeting occur on this date? If I got the date wrong, then that is just about the facts. But saying the role of slavery in the, in the revolution, when we know that slavery played a role, it's that type of credentialing that I think I'm up against. And that's the same thing that I face in, in journalism when I say we, we don't see objective coverage, right? The fact that for years you weren't seeing any real accounting of police violence. And what we were seeing was newspapers and TV news again and again running the police report as fact. The police said that they shot him because he went for the gun. And then citizen journalists start putting up videos showing actually he was running away and got shot in the back, right? But we were saying that that was just objective. We were just reporting the facts. That was, I would argue, a subjective decision. And and I think that's what I'm trying to get at is to really help us understand that so much of uh, the people who are helping us interpret our world, that it's impossible to be interpreting that world through a sheerly objective lens because objective means I'm completely impartial, I have a neutral point of view, and I'm just telling you what happened. What I'm actually telling you is what I think is important for you to know, and that's what I'm reporting on, and I think we should just be more honest about that. I agree with you, and I I think that's very powerfully put. What I always keep in the back of my mind is a debate between you and Sean Lenz is a debate, at least in my view, between people of goodwill trying to get it right, and then off on the other side somewhere, there's Donald Trump, for whom... A debate about objectivity is just an opportunity to say, look, it's all relative. There is no truth. And then he can tell, you know, well, the Washington Post counted, what, 30,000 lies. And so if we undercut the idea of objectivity to such a degree that we don't think there is objectivity at all, that can make it really hard to say, well, wait, there are some things that are true and there are some things that are false. We shouldn't fall into relativism. So I think what what's best, at least in my view, and I, I think you and I might probably agree about this, is that we should acknowledge objectivity as a goal and as a possibility with respect to facts and therefore not feel like we have to give in to the Trumpian line that it's all interpretation, it's all relative. 
their facts and then their alternative facts, while still being able to say honestly that when it comes to the interpretation of facts, whether in journalism or in history, there's no true objectivity and there probably can't be anything like true objectivity. And a lot of life is interpretation. A lot of life is picking and choosing which, which facts you're going to focus on in order to interpret. Agreed. But that's not the sound by society we live in. I mean, I think this is no, you're right. This, right. This is the struggle with my work, with your work. I think with being the country that we are is these are complex issues, but we want to be able to summarize them in very simplistic terms. And I think your example of Madison is a great, you know, it's like I'm trying to complexify the narrative of history. And that's not saying we should hate James Madison and never talk about James Madison. It is to say, however, that our founders were human beings. They were deeply contradictory. They both, just like a drug dealer understands that selling drugs is wrong, but has a financial vested interest in, in still doing something that they know is wrong, that it's possible to hold contradictory views. In fact, most of us do. Most of us do. And that can be hard to have that complex conversation. Like even as I, I was saying that to you, I was just seeing the Fox News headline is probably going to run as soon as uh, this podcast post that says Nicole Hannah-Jones compares James Madison to a drug dealer. Like this is the society. I- I'm telling you, I- I- I've spent the last few days with Fox News running nonstop, you know, one sentence of a, of a clip. I-, I talked about Cuba in an hour long interview, one sentence, wow. you know, to make an argument against me. And this is this is the world that we're living in where very few people are wanting to verify they're not interested in the more complex, nuanced story. What gets, you know, through the fray of all of this information we have um, and disinformation and misinformation we have are these tiny, simplistic ways of saying someone hates America or someone loves America. Our founders were all good or we're saying that they were evil. And it, it can be hard to do this kind of complex work and understanding that I think we're both working towards in that environment. Thank you for that. And, you know, if, if it'll, it'll add to their clip, I'll say that, you know, maybe Madison could be compared more to a drug addict than a drug, drug dealer there. <laughs> so far as, you know, he was born into the arms of an enslaved person and a, an enslaved person closed his eyes when he died. His entire economic existence, the thing that enabled him to do the work he did for the country was based on slavery. And in that sense, he was completely dependent on it. He couldn't do yes. without it. And he also knew it was wrong at some level. I'm not sure Jefferson entirely knew that, but I think that Madison did know that slavery was fundamentally wrong and immoral and that enslaving another human being was fundamentally wrong, and he went on doing it. I'm comparing him to a drug addict in that sense who knows I don't want to be on drugs, but I'm, I'm stuck on it, and you know what? Yes. I'm not going not gonna to change my ways. So people are complicated. I think I, I agree with you there, and it is a great challenge to contemplate our history and connect it to our future in the honest acknowledgement that people in the past were deeply flawed, and that people in the present, including us, are, are including deeply us. as well. And I, I, want, I really want to thank you, Nicole, for your extraordinary body of work um, and for your ongoing work in trying to complexify the way we think about our past, our, our present, and, and our future. And congratulations on your, your new position at Howard. And congratulations to the students that you're going to have, whom you're going to teach journalism um, alongside the, the journalism that you continue to do and the history that you continue to do. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, 
so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Listening to Nicole Hannah-Jones, I was struck again and again by just how important and complicated the 1619 Project is and how thoughtful she is about the controversies that have arisen around it. If you really think about it, the fact that the 1619 Project appeared in the New York Times gave it a kind of institutional centrality to our American debate from the get-go because it appeared in what is still broadly considered the paper of record. People who might have passed by this project altogether, either in support of it or in opposition to it, had it been produced in an academic journal, focused and took it seriously. People who were attracted to the narrative of the 1619 Project appreciated that the New York Times was willing to put its institutional prestige on the line by publishing something that had both historical and contemporary relevance and importance. At the same time, people who were opposed to that narrative were particularly upset, I think, because the New York Times stands for journalistic objectivity. And if you wish to contest the historical interpretation that the 1619 Project coalesces around, it's a lot harder to do so given that it did appear in the New York Times, which brings with it the association of journalistic objectivity than it would have been had these arguments appeared, as in many cases they had before, in academic journals. Thus, the question of journalism's power was central to a debate that then quickly became a debate about another form of power, the power to set our national narrative. Who gets to do that? Politicians in state legislatures believe they should have the right to do that by determining by law what gets taught in American schools about our history. Historians believe that they should have the institutional power to do that through their historical interpretation and through the work that they do in credentialed scholarly journals. And yet, in reality, everybody who has a voice has the capacity to contribute to that national narrative, and that includes journalism. In this sense, legacy media, and the New York Times is the very essence of legacy media, actually still plays a crucially important role even in the age of social media, in defining who we think we are and in getting people to argue about that core question of who we are. A further theme that emerged from Nicole Hannah-Jones's analysis is the theme of objectivity and figuring out exactly what it means. Nicole believes in what she calls objectivity of method, where you try very hard to get the facts right, whether those facts are journalistic or historical, and yet, the moment that we start asking, which facts are we adducing to make a point? Which facts matter? And what do the facts mean? We are, she says, out of the realm of objectivity and into a different realm, a realm of opinion and interpretation. In her view, where you come from, what your sociological background is, those are important factors in determining what you end up thinking. If there was any nuanced disagreement between us, I think it may have been over how much 
of what we know about a person's point of view can be deduced from those come-froms about the person. Finally, I think a key takeaway from what Nicole Hannah-Jones has to say is that we do need to insist on getting the facts right. We shouldn't be relativists about facts. We should, however, be grown-ups who recognize that interpretation is complex and that historical figures were complex. Complexity is for grown-ups. If we can recognize that our foundation as a country grew simultaneously out of the impulse to liberty and the impulse to slavery, if we can accept the reality that there were contradictions in people like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, then we can realize that our own world is a complex one where we too are imperfect and we too are full of contradictions. Taking that on board may not be easy, but it is a crucial step towards being the kinds of grown-ups we need to be as a nation to lead us into a better future. Deep Background is taking a two-week summer break. We will be back to you soon with new and exciting episodes. Until the next time I speak to you, breathe deep, think deep thoughts, and have a little fun. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you like what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC 2024, JP Morgan Chase and Co. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out. Who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. 
Granger, for the ones who get it done. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.